Annie, what was that? What was what? That voice just now. What was it? We didn't hear anything. All right. If your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would reason you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 237, Field of Dreams. This was only, um, I think, my second time ever watching this movie. And something that jumped out to me right away about it is really just how quick they get right to it. Oh, yeah, they don't waste any time. Because this movie is famous for something, you know, really the if you build it, they will come thing, which happens like... Feels like 30 seconds into the movie. Pretty much, yeah. Wastes no time. That's right. And it's just a coincidence, really, that we ended up doing this episode now when they just played the Major League Baseball game, the I, Field of um, Dreams game. That is total coincidence. Yes, this has been on the schedule for yeah. a long time. I had no idea that this game was happening this past week. When you told me we were doing it, I was like, okay. I never really have much to say about the schedule. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's just a, it's a movie, and we're doing it. That's that's fine. This one seemed random because it just seems like something I, I can say that I don't think we've ever talked about. You know, like, there's never been a time where we've even like, I wouldn't have even known if you were a fan of this movie or anything. I just don't think it's ever been brought up. I don't know how anyone could not be a fan. Yeah, of this movie. I I don't disagree with that. It's certainly emotional, but. I think probably about a week after I knew we were doing this, I saw a commercial for that game. Oh, that makes sense. You must be tying it in with that. But then I figured out that you weren't because the next time we talked, you're like, did you see they're playing a game there? (laughs) Well, the game was scheduled for last year at one point, and then they probably wanted to do it in 2019 for the anniversary. And for whatever reason, it took them two years to actually do it. Okay. Did they like have to rebuild this thing or what or is this something that stays i don't know if they played at the actual one or not but the one from the movie has stayed oh okay i didn't realize it's still there i i didn't watch the game on fox so i I don't know what those specifics were the one from the movie it doesn't feel like the outfield would be like big enough it seems like there'd be a lot of home runs it's hard to well there were a lot of home runs in the game okay the yankees hit two home runs to take the lead in the top of the ninth, and then it ended on a walk-off home run. Okay, all right, yeah. (laughs) It's the 15th time in history that the White Sox walked off with a home run against the Yankees, and the first time ever in their history, do you know who hit the home run? No. (laughs) Shoeless Joe Jackson? Yes. (laughs) Supposedly. I mean, I I don't have my baseball reference pulled up, but that's what people were saying. Well, I wasn't really sure how 
long of a career he had. I, I don't know at what point in his career this 1919 World Series happened. I took it to be like fairly early in his career. I really don't know. Okay. Off the top of my head. <laughs> this isn't baseballreference.com no, no. over here. Yeah, you're not Mike Francesa. <laughs> and people can fact check you too. So. so before we discuss Field of Dreams, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, whatever. Let us know on Twitter if you'd like a sticker or have a listener request or anything like that. We're going to be getting to some more listener requests coming up in the next few weeks or months or whatever. Coming up soon. And follow us on Letterboxd. Me at Zach1983 and Matt at Matt Crosby. We're on there. I just went through a Friday the 13th marathon for the recent Friday the 13th. That's right. I'm slowly making my way through as well. You'll see it at a little bit different pace. So maybe we'll be doing something with that coming up. Who knows, folks? Stay tuned. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I got to tell you, we're not really sure. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. Who knows what our future schedule is for the next couple of weeks? A lot of conversation about it today so far. (laughs) A lot of hand-wringing on my part, not really knowing what to do. Yeah, yeah, we get it. It's strange times. (laughs) I'm a little bit like... Robert Shaw in Jaws when he's talking about the story of the... That's what I think about you a lot. Waiting to be picked up by the lifeboats with the sharks eating people and how he didn't get scared until the end, until they were picking the people up. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like We're almost there. We're almost there. We're getting picked up. And now is when the anxiety for me is really setting in. Yeah. If people don't know what we're talking about, COVID, (laughs) anxiety. I, I thought you meant the reference to Jaws. Like, no, no, what I'm comparing it to. I feel like more anxious now than ever for some reason. And it must be that feeling of like getting close. And now, of course, something would go wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like I'm about to be, I'm actually being lifted out of the ocean. And then the shark just bites me in half. <laughs> that kind of a thing. You're like James Franco. And this is the end where like you're, you are getting sucked up into heaven. <laughs> and then you're like a dick about it. So you're just dropped back to earth. Yeah, I'm sure that's an image that people definitely want to think about is james franco going to heaven right now well he didn't make it okay field of dreams 1989 let's get into it this for lack of a better term often is compared to chick flicks however you feel about that phrase but for dudes i see yeah (laughs) this movie is Uh, schmaltzy as fuck they call a uh, guy cry movie (laughs) sure yes it's very schmaltzy very hokey yet it it definitely works. I think that it's still great. I think there's a couple of just excellent parts in it that really give me goosebumps almost. You have to sort of buy into the whimsy and the magic of it definitely. all. Yes. It is absurd, and everyone just kind of rolls with it. Yeah. Uh, it's and just you a fairy to. tale. Yeah, it's yeah. not based in any kind of reality, right. obviously. It's but just even for fun. accepting the supernatural, people don't really overreact to that, though, even. It's no. kind of just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, people roll with it pretty Th- this quick. This just happens. Field of Dreams was directed by Phil Alden Robinson, who had only made one feature before this called In the Mood, which was a flop. Mm. And so when Costner, who had just come off of Bull Durham and decided he was willing to make another baseball movie, signed on, he agreed to help with the production because, as we know, Costner would go on to direct a lot and do That's that right. kind of stuff. Yep. I don't really know how much he actually did on this movie as far as help 
Robinson. Robinson went on to direct other stuff like Sneakers, which is a pretty well-received movie from the early 90s, and then The Sum of All Fears. Ah. And he was one of the creators of The Good Fight, which is a current TV show now, which okay. I think you can watch on Paramount Plus or something. Interesting. So he's still active, although he hasn't directed a ton of stuff. He was mostly known as a writer, and he did the screenplay for Field of Dreams as well. It's based on the novel Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, same last name as Ray, which came out in 1982. Yeah. The budget was $15 million. At the box office, it made $84.4 million. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Original Score, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It did not win any of them. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that this movie deserved to be nominated for Best Picture over Do the Right Thing. I don't really want to have to have that debate. But when you look at what was nominated that year, Driving Miss Daisy, which won, which is controversial, obviously. Born on the Fourth of July, Oliver Stone won Best Director. Uh Dead Poets Society, another very schmaltzy movie in a lot of ways. Absolutely, yeah. Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. That's kind of just a schmaltzy year. Which obviously doesn't have the lasting imprint, but it did win two Academy Awards for acting. Okay. I'll include. I didn't say footprint, which would have been funnier. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't have the lasting footprint of the other movies. But I don't know that I would take Field of Dreams out of that five to put in Do the Right Thing. I think maybe there's a couple of other ones that would get the axe first. I was never a huge Dead Poets Society fan. Yeah, it's kind of a bore, really. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, the one that won Driving Miss Daisy, I think most people would vote that out now. Yeah. I do think that Do the Right Thing is better than most of those movies. It's probably better than all five of them, really. Yeah. But the fact that people appreciated this type of movie speaks to how people felt at the end of the 80s. It was still a more... Lame. Lame is one way to say it. I would say whimsical time. Sure. People were willing to embrace this kind of a thing. I don't think a movie like Field of Dreams would even remotely be considered for Best Picture now. David Lynch was watching this stuff and he's like, this is not my supernatural. (laughs) He's like, let me see what I can do to put a spin on this. Field of Dreams stars Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, Gabby Hoffman, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Timothy Busfield, and Burt Lancaster in his last film. I did not realize the little girl was Gabby Hoffman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This would have been right around Uncle Buck time. She looks pretty much the same. For a long time. Yeah. So let's talk about the title a little bit. Obviously, I just said the novel was called Shoeless Joe, and that was the shooting name during production. I think they ran it out there and tested it. Studio comes back and they're like, this isn't working. People are expecting a movie about like a That's right. a homeless guy riding the rails, <laughs> that kind of a thing. This isn't working right. People I do don't think know what it is. Field of Dreams is an infinitely better title. While Shoeless Joe is a key figure and sort of a, a catalyst for certain things in the movie, it's not really about him. Yeah. And so Robinson contacts Kinsella and is like look man they're making me change this he was like very apologetic and Kinsella was like look my publisher made me use the title Shoeless Joe my book was called Dreamfield (laughs) 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 so they kind of switched it back almost to what his original title was and I was thinking about how that was funny and then I was like you know what Shoeless Joe 
is a better title for a book and Field of Dreams is a more cinematic title for a movie. Yeah. It just makes sense. It all sort of worked out in that way. As I said, Costner was coming off of Bull Durham. They didn't even think to approach him because they were like, why would he want to do this? Yeah, he doesn't want to be pigeonholed as the baseball guy. And I do think that they originally went after Tom Hanks, yeah. who turned it down. And I have to say, I know Hanks has won multiple Oscars, and I don't know that Costner's ever won one for an actor, maybe once. No, I don't I think he won the Dances with Wolves movie one, but right. I, don't, I don't think he's ever won one for acting. But frankly, he would be so much better in this part than Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, in 1989, before he had done anything serious, really, or that serious, I think it would have come off as way too goofy. Yeah, I kind of agree. There's something to, yeah. about Costner where you can totally believe that he would treat baseball this seriously and take it this seriously. Yeah. Hanks did a baseball movie a few years later, A League of Their Own, which is a great movie, Absolutely. but it's much more of a comedic approach. And I Definitely. feel like he would bring that energy to this. Yeah. And I think it wouldn't have fit. It's weird because there is this excitement that the character has, but it has to come from a, a little bit more of a tame. Restrained. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't want that the burbs. Right. Turner and Eccentric, Hooch yeah. Energy. <laughs> So Costner read the script, and even though he had just done a baseball movie, wanted to do it because he thought that this movie would be a modern version of It's a Wonderful Life. It does have that feel. I was feeling It's a Wonderful Life-esque. Yeah, and there is a Roger Ebert quote I'm going to read in a little bit, and he made the same connection as well. In fact, they wanted to get Jimmy Stewart to play the older version of Moonlight Graham. Oh, gotcha. But at that point... He had not acted on screen in a decade. I think he did a voice in one of the Fievel movies okay. in the 80s. Gotcha. Maybe Fievel Goes West. He plays like a sheriff or something. But as far as like appearing on camera, it had been a decade or so. And so they turned to Burt Lancaster, who this was his last movie. Sort of brings the same gravitas in a, in a way. I think so. And it's, it's you almost- You can kind of tell that it's going to be his last movie. I will say that. <laughs> It's almost better in a way, because I think it's possible that the Jimmy Stewart casting would have been distracting. I don't know, but it's possible. One of the big changes from the book, which I did read probably about 10 to 12 years ago, maybe a little more, is that there is no Terrence Mann in the book. The character is actually J.D. Salinger, (laughs) the writer of Catcher in the Rye, amongst other books from that same era i guess that makes a little who bit more also sense. became very reclusive later in life yeah because it does feel like it's a real author how much they build into it the whole thing with the backstory with the book that the school is going to add yes. to its banned book it does feel like it's about a real author yeah they did a good thing once they realized that they couldn't actually make the character jd salinger because he threatened to sue them because he was so private and reclusive at this point yeah they did write the character for James Earl Jones, so they morphed it into more of a counterculture, icon, civil rights type person. Yeah. And and they do build a very credible backstory where you completely buy into this as a real thing. And so, yeah, when I first read the book, Shoeless Joe, I was stunned. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> J.D. Salinger? Salinger is a character in yeah. this book? And it is weird. Yeah, I would imagine. But it's the sort of thing you can kind of get away with in a book, but a movie it's harder to do. Right. The field 
was constructed in Dyersville, Iowa. They brought in like real MLB groundskeeper people. As I mentioned, they kept the field going and it's free to go to, although they do have like a little souvenir type place and that's how they generate income for gotcha. it and that kind of a thing. Yeah. But I don't really want to get into the whole corn growth or the field creation. There's a lot of info you can look into that stuff. That's fair. It's I, not really that interesting to me. That's not for me either. It's movie magic, people. Yeah. <laughs> they grew corn. They built a field, etc. Right. They brought in some batting people to help Listen, learn I'm, how to swing the bats. I'm happy to spend as much time on it as we spend on it in the movie, which is basically nothing. Okay, let's put the lights up, and then you look around, and the field's done. One of the more interesting factoids that I was finding out was that Phil Alden Robinson was very tense and depressed during filming. He was lacking confidence. He was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not pulling this off. <laughs> Me making a movie. <laughs> and he needed like constant reassurance that his script was good. Oh, no. That things were going to be happening. You know, like not constant, but like someone yeah. had to like help coach him up a little this bit. This is kind of like the pre-show for us all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he does pull it off. We were talking about it off mic, but this movie skates on thin ice when it comes to plunging into full-blown lifetime movie made-for-TV, hokey, cheese. And I think that because of really quality cinematography, it looks good. The baseball diamond in the corn looks amazing. The way they shoot it looks great. You have very professional actors. Like, it doesn't ever go there even though it's flying very close to that territory and i have to give him credit for being able to recapture like an it's a wonderful life type feeling because one of the things when you watch it's a wonderful life is you're like i I don't really feel like they could make a movie like this now and have it not feel silly and stupid yeah because with each generation people get more cynical yeah yeah so let's give our takes i like the movie a lot i watch it Every couple of years, usually. It's not an every year type movie for me, but you only said you saw yeah. it one other time. And I've never been a huge fan of it. <laughs> <laughs> but not... I, I, I've never, like, openly been against it or anything. It's just not really something that was a part of my life. I watched it on TV, actually, the, the one time I watched it, and I thought it was, like, fine. But it was never anything that I was rushing out to watch again. That being said, I did enjoy this screening. It was pulling at the heartstrings. Yeah, maybe you just needed to be a little bit older. Yeah. Start looking at your life. I don't know. I also think there's just too many baseball movies. Yeah, but the thing about this movie, even though it definitely is categorized as a baseball movie, is it never really feels like one. I agree, but you just kind of associate. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed this, and I'm in on it. It just wasn't something for me that I did watch a lot growing up, or I didn't... I've never owned it or anything like that. So. I think I probably started getting more into it in the last like ten years. Or yeah, something. it wasn't something that I was like super into, like in my early twenties or right. something. You were watching like Fight Club and Field of Dreams. <laughs> Although I probably did see Field of Dreams for the first time some point in the nineties. Yeah, something. this is one of those movies that w- would be on like TNT and TBS. It would pop up. Yeah, it's like a double feature of this and like. The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And then then Roadhouse Roadhouse. starts at (laughs) nine. (laughs) That's a big day on TNT. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think anything that feels like a fun, mystical adventure type thing, a big part of this movie is a road trip. 
Yeah. You don't always see what's coming because it's so out of left field, not to use a a baseball <laughs> analogy, but you know what I mean? I will say it's a difficult plot to predict. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like no one knows what's going right, to happen right. next. It just happens. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think that the more time that goes by, it actually helps this movie because there is nothing like this now. Yeah. Now, we say that a lot about a lot of types of movies, but that doesn't necessarily help those movies. This, I think, gives you nostalgia. Even if you weren't old enough to see Field of Dreams in the theater, it just gives you sort of a nostalgia, which is funny because it's a movie about nostalgia for a time before this. Yeah, yeah, right. And nostalgia is evergreen. People will always feel it, no matter how shitty their life was. Right. They'll always be like, it was better back then. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it's weird, and not that he's bad in it by any means, but Ray Liotta being like this kind of heroic figure in the movie, <laughs> just for what we're used to him being for the next 25 years of his career after this. <laughs> yeah, this was a year before Goodfellas. Yeah. And he had played sort of dangerous shitbags, like in Something Wild and stuff like that. And this was a little bit off type for him. In fact, I think they originally wanted to cast somebody older than Costner to feel more like a father figure. I guess maybe to like, yeah, be a diversion to make you think that he's like standing in. And then they ended up going with Leota though because he brought that sense of mystery and danger to it yeah and i think it's cooler that he's younger because it makes you feel like it's shoeless joe like more in his prime right right you want these players to walk out of it feeling like they're in the prime of life and they're gonna put on this great baseball show although as we'll talk about when we get into the movie itself i mean how long <laughs> would point. it take to lose interest in this and oh just i know. go back inside <laughs> like okay great Roger Ebert said, quote, This is the kind of movie Frank Capra might have directed and James Stewart might have starred in. A movie about dreams. And I think, much like Bull Durham with baseball, much like Eddie and the Cruisers with rock music, oh, yeah. this is definitely reveling in that mystical time period where this stuff was revered and you couldn't really do this about baseball post-strike post-steroids no different time where this was a part of american culture absolutely and that was like definitely hitting with me when i was watching this because you and i know like we said there's a bunch of baseball movies but it's not something that fits in with today's culture and just the way that baseball is viewed by people but you totally are reminded of how much baseball was ingrained with yeah, I, th- I think we talked about the same thing with the Sandlot. Yeah, yeah. Just the, and there's a couple people from the Sandlot. That's right. In this <laughs> the movie. babe, yeah. The babe, well, and James Earl Jones. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it might be harder for our younger listeners to understand why this movie was such a big deal, why it was nominated for three Oscars and made a lot of money. On the surface, the ending is almost anticlimactic unless you feel that connection, the father-son thing, if right. that like resonates with you or not. If it doesn't, you're thinking, how is this the end of the movie? It led to, like, not that much happening. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because the whole problem, let's be honest, the problem of the movie is they're going to lose their farm, but the only reason they're going to lose their farm is because he started building this field in the first place. <laughs> so they create their own problem. Yeah, yeah. There isn't that much to the plot besides right. that, unless you really, like, resonate with that story. And... And then when you see the line of cars at the end, are you like, is this even a good thing? It's going to become like Woodstock 99? 
where are these people going to park? That's yeah. what I was thinking. That's a real shot, too. We'll talk about that later. Those are oh, real cars. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Okay, let's get into it. We'll see how this goes. Matt doesn't like this movie a lot, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably true for like 50% of our episodes. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. No. <laughs> the movie begins with a little bit of a preamble with Costner narrating, telling the story of himself, Ray Kinsella, and his father, John. Yeah. But I did want to say this about the idea of strained relationships between kids and their parents. That had to be like a generational thing because that seemed to be in a lot of movies and shows in a way that well, I yeah. don't think it is now, right? Yeah, most of like the Spielberg stuff, there's like absent fathers and stuff. Yeah, yeah I mean, that was definitely our parents' generations, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Dealing with that. That a lot. was just something I was thinking about while watching this. I was like, wow, this just seemed like something that was way more prominent in just like general movie tv storytelling from this era well it sort of ties in with the point i wanted to make about ray's father when he's doing this whole preamble history thing which is he says that his father was born in like 1896 so right away you're (laughs) like what the fuck (laughs) that's almost a hundred years ago from when this movie came out and you're just thinking okay and they do sort of fudge around with it where they're like, well, his father seemingly fought in World War One. He comes back. He doesn't have a son until much later in life. And he says that he was born in 1952. I know. That seems crazy. So that means his father was already almost 60 years old, which is definitely possible. His yeah. mother must have just been way younger. But it sort of clouds the rest of the story, his background story, when you think about it, because yeah. he's talking about... Like, what is this, his, his second family? Running out on his dad when he's like 17. It's like, well, okay, but then so <laughs> you your left dad, like a man who was like, like 80 years yeah. old. It doesn't feel like they really want you to think about that too much, but it makes sense because he talks about his dad dying around the time he got married. He never met his granddaughter not that he would have anyway that's also the thing that doesn't make any sense they're like we never got to meet his granddaughter it's like well he wouldn't have even if you had a good relationship because he was already dead yep (laughs) but you know what i'm saying it's weird and it's sort of something that hangs over it i'm sure the book came out seven years earlier so they were able to make that make a little more sense Mm -hmm. but only by seven years i i don't know i just think like why not make his father born a little bit later I guess they wanted to get the timing right for the 1919 World Series, which is also a problem with this movie. Because the 1919 World Series is like so far back in time that it's almost better if you try to make this movie as like a period piece that happened like in the 50s. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, like 40 or 50 years later. Not like 80 years later or 70 (laughs) years later. Because. I don't know, did anyone in 1989 really care that much about Shoeless Joe Jackson? I mean, I guess part of it is to put a spotlight on the story and yeah. tell a story that people weren't familiar with, but we'll get to that later. Just the, f- yeah. <laughs> the fact that he acts like it's such a sick burn to be like, your hero was a criminal? Yeah. Talking about oh, a baseball player? Right. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> He's saying that to an 80-year-old man? <laughs> We have like two minutes of exposition. Like this is why people don't think about the 1896 because it's all just crammed in this front two minutes of the movie. 
Right, but even if later in the movie you forgot about what year his father was born, you might be reminded of the Black Sox scandal, and you're oh, like, yeah. "If wait, okay, so this is 1988 is clearly when the movie's set, right. because one of the characters, he doesn't say it's 88, but he references how, like, he's like, I died in 1970, one of the ghosts. Oh, yeah. So it's 18 years later. So basically, it's taking place probably when they were filming it, so 88. Right. So you're talking about something that happened 70 years ago. So you're thinking, okay, if his father was like a big fan of Shoeless Joe, like even if you're not remembering the 1896 part. So when he says to his wife or later in the film, when I knew my father, he was already an, an old man, like run down. It's like, no, he was not run down by any, He was just old. People get old. Yes, yes. Ray, right. deal with it. <laughs> he makes it this whole thing about his father not pursuing his dreams. It's like, well, he was just old, period. That's right. At a certain point. <laughs> We, you just have to accept it. I mean, there's no more pursuing. So we get this whole thing in the preamble. It's a troubled and broken relationship with his father. His father was born before 1900, was greatly affected by the 1919 World Series. We'll talk about that a little bit more later to provide some context. But as we said, it's ancient history by 89, which seems weird, although baseball did loom large still. That's right. Which we've covered in other podcasts, but... This was still a time where baseball was like the preeminent thing. Football was getting big. It was definitely big in certain places. Hockey was, as always, very regional. Basketball was still somewhat regional, but more like big city type regional. But baseball was America's pastime. And one of the cool things about this movie is, and The Natural, which came out like five years earlier, it reminds you that baseball is very much a rural sport in America as it is anything else. That's right. The story of the kid hitting monstrous home runs who then has to take the train to the big city to play, coming from places like Iowa. I know. It's weird for me to think about, though, because I was always like, growing up, baseball was the hardest one to organize as a pickup sport. You need so many people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But it was something played in the smallest places across the country that sort of fits in with what the Moonlight Graham younger version definitely is talking about later about just finding these towns. And that's something this movie captures well by putting it in Iowa. It has no real connection to a big city or that kind of a thing. Yeah. Ray is 36 and he's married to Annie. His father is now long dead. Ray and Annie, along with their daughter, Karen have an Iowa corn farm. This movie's funnier than I was expecting it to be, too. I will say that. A lot of jokes about <laughs> the life that he's taken to, and even like the idea of him. I went to college in San Francisco. My major was English, but what I really majored in was the 60s. Yeah, I guess they're trying to portray him as sort of an aimless guy. He loves his wife and daughter, but as far as himself, he's never really had that much ambition towards any one particular thing. He sort of fell into this life. And he's making kind of a lot of jokes about the fact that they just like live in Iowa. Yeah, that's where his wife is from, and she convinced him to buy this farm. It's not something that he was passionate about. That's right. So they're trying to make it as corn farmers. I will point out that this movie looks absolutely gorgeous at times in 4K. Completely stunning. This opening portion right here, Mm. once we get past that preamble, it's all shot at the magic hour. Oh, yeah. 
dusk, the sun, summer sunset in Iowa. It looks incredible. And it, as you said, it doesn't waste any time. No, and that's was something that I continued to be pleasantly surprised by as I went through the movie. But yeah, if you know of Field of Dreams, you know of if you build it, they will come. He will come. He will come. The fact that there's just like this quick two minutes of exposition and then they're just right into the voice. It almost knocked me off my feet how quick you're into it. While walking through his cornfield one evening, Ray hears a voice whispering, if you build it, he will come. A lot of discussion as to who is that voice, who portrays it. According to IMDb, they've went with the theory that it's Ed Harris, who was married to Amy Madigan, I think, at the time. Oh, wow. I don't know that's ever been confirmed. Some people thought it was Ray Liotta. I don't think that it is. Some people thought it was like the director or someone else. I don't know. I'm willing to go with Ed Harris. I, I like Ed I Harris. Care. Yeah. The voice is insistent, relentless, almost haunting. He keeps hearing it. He doesn't know what it is. At his wit's end, alarmed that he may in fact be going crazy, Ray sees a vision of a baseball diamond in the cornfield and a quick flash of shoeless Joe Jackson, who is Ray Liotta. And I do like the balls of this movie to just be like, yeah, it's Shoeless Joe Jackson. Yeah. There's and, not even a really a big explanation to it. And the as if we that, would know who that is. <laughs> but I love that Kevin Costner is immediately getting what he's supposed to do. I would have been like, I don't know. What do you want me to do? Go like buy a book about Shoeless Joe? <laughs> Maybe it's like a sense, like it's yeah. just an overwhelming feeling too that goes along with it. Like I this is I just feel like this is what I have to do now. I have to build a baseball field and Shoeless Joe Jackson will show up. He's surprisingly honest with Annie <laughs> yeah. because he says, I think it means that if I build a baseball field out there, shoeless Joe Jackson will come back and play ball again. And she's just like, what? <laughs> but then kind of quickly like, okay, let's do this. Her real reaction should have been Karen getting in the van, we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's insane. He's dangerous. <laughs> Which I will say, in fairness to her brother, who is just painted as this horrible villain, he does kind of have some of those reactions. Yeah. He's like, what people playing baseball? And then that night that he tells Annie about this, it's just a night of endless Shoeless Joe facts. Oh, I know. You just sort of sympathize with the women in this movie, although there aren't many, but it's basically Annie and Karen. They just have to be like sucked into his orbit of this useless baseball knowledge where they have to pretend that they're interested in this. Right. It was kind of interesting for me going through this experience, I guess, in the order that I have in my life. I watched this movie. The stuff about the 1919 World Series didn't really stay with me for years after this. But then it's like you watch Boardwalk Empire and like Arnold Rothstein is like the character on there that was the guy who like set right. this up or you yeah. know, supposedly infamously did that. And then watching The Great Gatsby the other day, it's like the character that is like in business with Gatsby it's like based off Arnold Rothstein. They mentioned fixing the 1919 World Series in it. Ray is essentially scared of turning into his father, a man who grew old before his time, according to Ray, although I dispute that, and never achieved anything. Kind of a shitty thing to say. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay. He wants to build the field, and Annie is the most supportive partner of all time. Yeah, shockingly supportive, really. Just willing to go along with this at the risk of financial hardship because every piece of land on their property counts. They're already sort of up against it. This would be a situation where they would be 
losing money from crops that That's would be true. growing in that space. Yeah, and it's they, a huge gamble. They come to the point <laughs> at some point when doing the finances that with the amount of space they've taken up with the field, if everything works out, everything grows appropriately and they're able to sell it all, they might break even. <laughs> and you're like, okay, so <laughs> this is really doesn't seem like a sustainable plan. But we see Ray plowing the corn up. He's pulling Karen into his delusions. He's attracting attention and ridicule from the town, who do kind of seem overly invested in this. I don't really think it makes sense to have that shot of the townspeople like gathered on the road, like watching him do this. Yeah. They would probably gossip about it if they heard about what he was doing, but I don't know that they would sit there watching him and There's probably like some competitor farmers in the area that would be like, This idiot is wasting valuable cropland. What the hell is he doing? He's throwing under his horn. Why? Ty Cobb called him the greatest left fielder of all time. They said his glove was the place where triples go to die. Could he hit? Could he hit? Lifetime average, 356, third highest in history. Why'd they call him Shoeless Joe? Well, when he was still in the minors, he'd bought a new pair of spikes and they hurt his feet. So about the sixth inning, he took them off and played the rest of the game in just his socks. The other players kidded him, called him Shoeless Joe, and the name stuck. Gonna lose his farm. Damn fool. Then in 1919, his team, the Chicago White Sox, they threw the World Series. What's through? It means they lost it on purpose. Gamblers paid them to. Except Shoeless Joe. Now, he did take their money, but nobody could ever prove he did a single thing to lose those games. I mean, if he's supposed to be throwing, how do you explain the fact that he hit 375 for this series and didn't commit one error? Huh? 12 hits, including the series' only home run. They said he's trying to lose. It's ridiculous. The commissioner of baseball suspended eight of the players, including the great Shoeless Joe Jackson, for life. What? Suspend? Means they never let him play the game again. You know, my father said he saw him years later playing under a made-up name in some 10th-rate league in Carolina. Said he put on 50 pounds and the spring was gone from his step, but he could still hit. Dad used to say nobody could hit like Shoeless Joe. I think that's the first time I've ever seen you smile when you mentioned your father. I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. Am I completely nuts? Huh? Not completely. It's a good baseball field, Ray. It's kind of pretty, isn't it? Once the field is completed, several months pass, and the Kinsella family is facing some potential dire straits. They blew their savings to put up the lights, to buy the equipment, to put in the bleachers. It's mm-hmm. not just plowing down an area. It's a whole process to, to construct a little field there. And obviously they've lost that acreage for corn. 
What sort of electricity bill are they running up with these stadium lights? I don't know. I don't. It doesn't seem like they're running them all the time. Though. Yeah. Well, Yet. No. Yet. Yeah. Just as Ray is beginning to doubt himself, Karen points out that there is a man standing outside on the field, and this is probably why they gave us that flash of Shoeless Joe right. earlier, so that we would know who this guy is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Shoeless Joe Jackson, played by Ray Liotta. And I do think that they're all sort of underselling the fact that there's a fucking ghost in their yard. (laughs) They're just sort of like, yeah, we expected this to happen, and here it is. (laughs) Ray goes out to greet Joe and, without really saying much, just starts hitting some flies out to him in the outfield for him to catch. And then Ray pitches to Joe some batting practice. Surprisingly well. He's getting them all over the plate. Joe's knocking them out of the park. Yeah, we're going to learn later that Ray had some baseball experience. So one of the things people love to point out to Ray Liotta here is that Shoeless Joe was left-handed. Oh, no. And Ray Liotta is (laughs) right-handed. His response is usually, yeah, well, they didn't come back to life in real life either. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Leota's actually pretty convincing as a hitter. He had to like train. He had like yeah. almost no baseball experience oh, wow. before this in his life. No, he looks good. He's in good form, as they say. Yeah, he's pretty believable. Even though, as I said, for a baseball movie, there isn't like a ton of baseball in it. Sure. But the stuff that is in it seems pretty good looking. It's not Freddie Prince Jr. pitching in Summer Cat or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can kind of buy these guys as like real players. Sure. It looks good. Shoeless Joe gives us the first of many speeches about the power and magic of baseball where he talks about, I have played for nothing. There's a lot of waxing philosophically about the sport in this movie. A lot of characters do it. It's a huge part of the movie. There's a lot of bummer to Shoeless Joe talking about what happened to him and not being able to play anymore and just how horrible that was. I think that's like one of the most powerful monologues parts of dialogue in the whole movie when he's talking about that comparing it to somebody who's lost a limb and like years later like reaching feeling for it even though like feeling like you have an itch there so let's give people a little bit of the backstory if they're not familiar the black Sox scandal was a major league baseball game fixing scandal in which eight members of the chicago white Sox were accused of throwing the 1919 world series against the cincinnati reds in exchange for money from a gambling syndicate led by Arnold Rothstein, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, what a name, was appointed <laughs> as a response to the incident to be the first commissioner of baseball and given absolute control over the sport to restore its integrity. Despite acquittals in a public trial in 1921, Judge Landis permanently banned all eight men from professional baseball The punishment was eventually defined by the Baseball Hall of Fame to include banishment from consideration for the Hall. Despite requests for reinstatements in the decades that followed, particularly in the case of Shoeless Joe Jackson, the ban remained. (laughs) Shoeless Joe was an outfielder who played Major League Baseball in the early 1900s. He's remembered for his performance on the field and his association with that scandal. I'm trying to see to answer your question from earlier. His debut was 1908, so he'd been in the league for like 11 years. Okay. But they say that of all these guys that threw the World Series, it's like questionable for him because he performed really well in the World Series. Yeah, and Costner talks about that to Karen, who's 
of course, super interested in these facts. Because he batted in the high 300s for that series. Yeah, he led the World Series in a lot of statistical categories and didn't commit any errors or anything like right. that. So it's un- he may or may not have taken their money. It's sort of unclear, but he definitely didn't actually throw the games. The reason why these players were interested in doing this was because there was no free agency, and if you refused to play for the team that you belonged to, like your career was basically over. Yeah. And so the owners had so much power and control. There was no players' union or anything like that. Right. And so players would do this frequently. This was the largest stage that this had happened, but this was not the only time. This was something very common that happened in baseball back then because it was an easy way to pick up extra money. And yes, throughout history, up until even a couple of years ago, with the new baseball commissioner, Rob Manford, it was still being brought up that they would reinstate Shoeless Joe, and it keeps getting denied for whatever reason. Don't really know why at this point. It's pretty wild. I mean, I think we're past the statute of limitations. (laughs) It's over 100 years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. And they give the backstory on the Shoeless Joe nickname, right? Yeah, where he just he took off his cleats during a minor league. Oh game. yeah, yeah. They had a different nickname for me when I played baseball, Talentless Matt. I thought we were gonna get a real story for a minute, which no. would be pretty funny. <laughs> Bench boy. Yeah. <laughs> but we find out pretty quick now that Shoeless Joe's arrived that he can't actually step foot off of the field. The significance of this will play out later in the film, but it's made pretty clear when he leaves for that night. Joe asks if he can bring the others back with him. Ray, of course, agrees, mm-hmm. f- stating that the field was built for him anyway. Shoeless Joe asks, hey, is this heaven? Ray responds, no, it's Iowa. One of the more iconic That's exchanges right. yes. from the movie. And Shoeless Joe disappears into the corn, and the corn acts as a gateway yeah. to heaven or whatever's on the other side. I think at one point in a deleted scene, you can hear one of the players say that they like sleep basically is what it's like they okay. just sort of fade out and then they fade back in something yeah, but yeah. that's not really in the movie annie's brother mark timothy busfield he's unable to see the players he warns them ray and annie that they are going bankrupt and offers to buy their land before they default on their loan with the bank like i said he's definitely painted as a villain seems horrible but when you really take a step back it seems like he has pretty good intentions here based on what he's seeing yeah i mean it seems like he's watching he his seems sister make so a horrible... over the top though that's true yeah he takes a certain action at one point that is just unforgivable at least in my eyes not in the eyes of the characters of the movie <laughs> but uh, i think he takes like a couple yeah yeah sort okay. of surreptitiously buying the note from the bank so that they're basically in debt to him well so that's that they true can foreclose on it yeah it's like what right they just seem a little gung-ho for a group that's led by her brother, of all people. That's true. It does <laughs> No seem leniency like, on this. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like dates are approaching like quicker than they would because someone's forcing the issue. Yeah. So Shoeless Joe returns with the rest of the suspended Chicago Black Sox players. Amongst them is Art LaFleur, who played the Babe in The Sandlot. That's right. Him and James Earl Jones both in those movies yep costner also in bull durham i think once you're in a baseball movie you're just sort of in that club yeah yeah you gotta do at least two costner played a baseball player in for love of the game that's right and he also played a baseball player in a movie that wasn't really a sports movie he was actually like a dj what what is that i can't remember what it was (laughs) 
we're talking into the 2000s okay. where he was like a former baseball player but he's played a baseball player a lot yeah <laughs> so they're sitting around they have these bleachers karen and annie can see the players as can ray no one else yet can how soon would the novelty wear off of watching these eight guys just practice baseball yeah you would definitely be blown away at first but then you're sort of like okay I'm ready to go back inside now. It's like, okay, they're ghosts. That's weird. It's cool. They can't yeah. step off the field. Okay. They go through the corn. All right, I'm going to head in. Yeah. I'm going to see what's on TV. <laughs> I'd be like calling the Warrens to come over and see what they can do about this. Get rid of them. Yeah. But the voice returns, urging Ray to, quote, ease his pain. Yes. Ray doesn't know what this means either. But as he did with... The first message from The Voice he will learn over time as things become more clear. Ray and Annie attend a PTA meeting where she argues against someone who is trying to ban books by Terrence Mann. Yeah, this scene almost feels weird and out of place, except it's all kind of building up the Terrence Mann character. Yeah, it's basically supposed to establish who he is and then also serve as the situation where Ray figures out that clue. It's a hilarious PTA scene. It like, is, yeah. It's completely insane. This is another scene I was I was just laughing at. The only unbelievable part is that Annie wins everyone over and they vote against banning the books. I was like, Although, that, that would not happen now. They it, would be like, ban this book. And even in the scene, it's sort of a reluctant winning over. Like people aren't. Yeah, like they were like afraid throwing of throwing their hands up. Yeah. <laughs> Ray deduces the voice was referring to man who had named one of his characters in a short story, John Kinsella, which was. Ray's father's name, and had once professed a childhood dream of playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was actually like sort of a a poetic moment too that fit in with what Shoeless Joe was saying about having something taken away from him and like the Phantom Lind thing. Yeah, right. Where in this thing from Terrence Mann in this story talking about his dream of playing with Jackie Robinson, how they tore Ebbets Field down mm-hmm. and the Dodgers left town, and yet the dream still existed he would still sometimes dream the dream and it's sort of this poetic way of talking about not giving up on your dreams even when they're impossible which is something this movie does really well and that's why it works even though it it's insane (laughs) ray is in full-blown hysteria at this point talking about wanting to take this reclusive author who was very famous in the 60s to a baseball game by the way having to drive across the country but i have to disagree with annie on this one the idea of taking Terrence Mann to a game in Boston is not crazier than the ghost field. That's right. Because she's seems... like, it's even crazier than building the ghost field. Yeah. This is... No, it isn't. Definitely more affordable. Well, before you knew the ghosts existed, it's like, well, this is a real human, right. at least. Yeah. I mean, it seems <laughs> unlikely you're going to be able to do this, but it's still in the realm right. of possibility. Yeah. <laughs> Annie is convinced, though, when it becomes clear that both she and Ray had the same dream about Ray watching a game at Fenway Park with Terrence Mann. Although that's so weird that she didn't mention that before. Uh, yeah, I guess that they're trying to say that she didn't really know what it was. Okay. And it's being filled in for her as to what was happening. Yeah. I don't think she knew that that's exactly what Ray even had in mind right. at first. Okay. Ray does have a little bit of that manic energy to him where he's just sort of jumping to conclusions, but not always like explaining everything, probably. Yeah. So the supernatural force, whatever it is at work, is pushing Annie in the right direction, too. It seems to understand that sometimes husbands and wives have to come to an agreement on things. And I can't help but think to myself how nice it is to have a supernatural force telling you what to do. Yeah. 
because without it, it's hard to have any direction. I think I would have probably given up, though, pretty quick on this. Yeah. I've been like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Driving to Boston? I can't make a baseball field. I'm in Iowa. <laughs> I got to tell you, this van that he drives is pretty cool, though. Yeah, it's definitely a throwback to the 60s. You definitely see the lingering 60s stuff if you pay attention to the definitely, background. Definitely, yeah. They have like a Marilyn Monroe pop art thing by Andy Warhol in their mm-hmm. house. They have a John Lennon picture in right. the background. And then they have this like Volkswagen bus type thing with like a piece yeah. sticker and stuff like that. And it is kind of funny. The idea of, yeah, a lot of hippies did kind of <laughs> go on to become regular functioning people in society. <laughs> <laughs> it did end for some of them. The next portion of the movie is the road trip portion, which goes on for a while. At first, Ray goes to Boston, tracking Terrence down. When he finally finds Terrence's apartment, he has the door slammed in his face. There's some major reluctance. Who the hell are you? Sir, my name's Ray Kinsella. We got a learning disability here? Mr. Man, if I could just have one minute, please. Look, I can't tell you the secret of life. And I don't have any answers for you. I don't give interviews, and I'm no longer a public figure. I just want to be left alone. So back off. Uh, Wait! Wait! Look, I've come 1,500 miles to see you at the risk of losing my home and alienating my wife. All I'm asking is one minute. Please. One minute. Okay, I understand your desire for privacy, and I wouldn't dream of intruding if this weren't extremely important. Oh, God. I don't do causes anymore. This isn't a cause. I don't need money or an endorsement. Refreshing. You once wrote, there comes a time when all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place, and the universe opens itself up for a few seconds to show you what's possible. Oh, my God. You're from the 60s. Well, you actually... Ow, hey! Back to the 60s. Wait a second. There's no place for you here in the future. Get back while you still can! You've changed. You know that? Yes, I suppose I have. How about this? Peace, love, dope! Now get the hell out of here! Terrence is played by James Earl Jones, who... Brings a certain gravitas to the proceedings. I think it's great, inspired casting. Yeah, I got to tell you, the initial showing up at his apartment, I was getting some some Zach vibes. From who? James oh, Earl Jones. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just like a reclusive. Leave me alone. Yeah. His door is insane. It almost seems like a panic room door. It's <laughs> like multiple bolts on it. That'll be like me to yeah. our listeners in... 10 years when they're trying to track me <laughs> That's <down>. right, yeah. <laughs> Terrence is a recluse who doesn't want to have anything to do with anything anymore. But Ray manages 
to get him to attend one game after several failed attempts and pretending to kidnap him at one point. There's it a actually lot of goes on for like a little bit too long. Yeah, a little bit. At the game, apparently Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are somewhere in the crowd. Oh, wow. As youngsters yeah, that's in this awesome. Fenway scene. And so when Affleck showed up on set for the sum of all fears, he said to Robinson, he's like, great to work with you again. And he was just like, what? <laughs> and he explained that he was there for yeah. this. <laughs> Although I don't think they're anywhere close to being on camera. Sure. I paid pretty close attention and I didn't see them. So I don't know. During the game, Ray once again hears the voice. This time it's telling him to, quote, go the distance. The electronic scoreboard flutters and then reads, Archibald Moonlight Graham, Chisholm, Minnesota, New York Giants, 1922, lifetime statistics, one game, zero at bats. And he starts trying to jot it down, and he gets a little bit discouraged and confused when he realizes that Terrence is not really seeing it or reacting to it. And he's right. like, well, what did why, you have to do with this? Yeah, why did I have to bring this dude here? One thing I did want to talk about while we're still at Fenway before they go to their seats, order concessions, two hot dogs, two beers, $7 total. Yeah. At a stadium, unheard of. <laughs> yeah, it, I'm pretty sure the character does say $7, but my subtitles had $10. Oh, I really? Like, oh, I didn't have subtitles on for this. This was a f- one of the first things I've watched without subtitles in <laughs> years. No, I think he does say 7 It sounds like it 7 It sounded like but, 7 Yeah, I noticed that. I was like, wait a minute. I was this, like, I don't even know if you could get just one beer for $7 now. Yeah, it's a different time. Yeah. This would have been a couple seasons after the Miracle of 86 where the Mets... With the Bill Buckner yeah, play. Won yeah, won the World Series. Right. This would probably have been... Hard a, times in Boston. A rough time yeah. period. <laughs> because, yeah, you didn't go back to the World Series and win the next year no. to make up for it. It's, <laughs> it's not headed in the right direction. No, no. <laughs> But I love seeing old baseball shit from the 80s because it, it definitely reminds me of being a kid. Yeah. Because when I was a kid growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, pre-strike, baseball was huge. We've already said it. And baseball it was huge was my for sport. me personally. Yep. And seeing all the old, I mean, an athletics Red Sox oh, yeah. game in 1988, you got like probably Canseco and McGuire. That's right. And just the way the stadiums looked, and I can remember how they smelled and stuff. And Clemens was probably pitching for the Red Sox. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> it's a lot to process That's for right. us. <laughs> a lot of roids on those two teams. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know that everything was tarnished at that point. There's a lot of innocence in That's that right. era. I guess you didn't have to be here. What? Whenever you want to go, we can go. 
Fine, let's go. You're not telling me. I've already taken up too much of your time. I wish I had your passion, Ray. Misdirected though it might be, it is still a passion. I used to feel that way about things, but... You got another message, didn't you? You think I'm crazy? I already think you're crazy. What did it say? It said the man's done enough. Leave him alone. At first, Terrence denies seeing anything out of the ordinary, but then they leave the game, and when Ray drops him off, the truth comes out. He also saw the scoreboard change and heard the voice. He just didn't really know what to make of it. I gotta tell you, he does a really good job no-selling it, because when Costner looks over at him in Fenway, he has a look of nothing is going on. Yeah, we're probably not doing the best job of explaining it, but he's sort of there under protest, yeah, annoyed that this is happening. But I guess you have to buy into the supernatural, magical elements like pushing him in this direction because he's like, all right, I'll do this baseball right. game. Like, why would he agree to this? I know. Together, they head to Minnesota in search of Moonlight Graham. And I was thinking, okay, so Terrence just hops back into the van. He doesn't need to pack anything for this. <laughs> <laughs> he's just rocking the same clothes Which day after day. Which does kind of become a joke in the movie when... Like, he's reported as missing. (laughs) Yeah. Back on the home front, the walls are closing in on Annie, but she's sort of protecting Ray from knowing the whole story, I guess. Mark turning out to be just such a villain. It's honestly kind of, like, insane that they inject the movie with this. I know. (laughs) But I guess they need, like, some element, uh, some some pressure. The walls have to be closing in in some way. Ray and Terrence find out in Minnesota that Moonlight Graham became a doctor after washing out of baseball, but he passed away in 1972. So yes, Moonlight Graham was real. However, in the movie, the baseball career was altered a bit to fit the story. I don't think the years were necessarily the years they're saying in the movie. Was he a career 0-for-1 hitter in real life? No, he didn't even have it in bat. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. I think he only played in one game. I, I don't know if he had a bats or not. But the things that are said about him by the people in Chisholm, Minnesota, were all true, and they came from actual people that knew him. 
Yeah. And so they incorporated that stuff into the movie. He was beloved in the town. Okay. I definitely love that story of the boxes of blue hats right. that he bought for his wife. And when he died, they found so many more that he hadn't gotten around to giving her yet. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I like so, this town, too. Well, it was actually a town in Illinois that was standing in. Okay. It wasn't really in Minnesota. I was wondering. I think Minnesota was probably a little too far. Yeah. They did actually go to Boston for about a week. Okay. And film the Fenway stuff. Obviously, right. they didn't. Yeah. Affleck and them. Damon didn't make the trip to the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, they actually built a replica of Fenway <laughs> just for this one shot. Yeah. This budget of this movie was $1 billion. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the movie almost goes to like another level of Supernatural. Yes. Where you're just like, what, are, what movie are we watching now? Right. <laughs> Ray takes a walk in Chisholm, and unbeknownst to him, time travels back to 1972. I do like the way that they do it, too. They give you, like, the Godfathers in theaters, and it's one of this year's best. Slowly but surely, he's realizing it, and then he looks at the license plate, and it has 72 on it. On the street, Ray encounters Doc Graham, played by Burt Lancaster. He takes a walk with them. They walk to Doc's office. They talk about his one major league appearance. And I think to Ray's surprise, Doc seems oddly good with it. He's content. He wishes that he would have got the chance to have an at-bat, but he doesn't want to go with Ray, even though he seems to believe that Ray could make his wish to get a big league at-bat come true. Ray is following breadcrumbs, but he thinks he's putting pieces together because he's figured out what he's kind of doing. For Shoeless Joe, and I think he thinks here that he's going to offer the same thing, but it's not really met with, oh yeah, that would be great. It's more met with, no, I think this is right. Like I ended up making the right career choice, and me being a doctor worked out for like myself and so many other people. What do you want to talk to me about? Well, when you got to the majors, you you played only one inning of one game. What happened that inning? It was the last day of the season. Bottom of the eighth inning, we were way ahead. I'd been up with the club about, uh, oh, about three weeks, but I hadn't seen any action. Suddenly, old John McGraw points a bony finger in my direction, and he says, right field. Yes, sir. I jumped up like I was uh, sitting on a spring, grabbed my glove, and ran out on the field. Did you get to make a play? I never hit the ball out of the infield. Game ended, the season was over. I knew they'd send me back down. I couldn't bear the thought of another year in the minors. So I I decided to hang him up. Oh, sit down. Thank you. So what was that like? It was like having this close to your dream. And then watch them brush past you like a stranger in a crowd. At the time, you don't think much of it. You know, we just don't recognize the most significant moments of our lives while they're happening. Back then, I thought, well, there'll be other days. I didn't realize that that was the only day. And now, Ray Kinsella, I want to ask you a question. What's so interesting about a half an inning that would make you come all the way from Iowa to talk to me about it 50 years after it happened? I didn't really know till just now, but I think it's to ask you if you could do anything you wanted, if you could have a wish. 
And are you the kind of a man who could grant me that wish? I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, you know, I... I never got to bat in the major leagues. I'd have liked to have that chance just once. To stare down a big league pitcher. To stare him down, and just as he goes into his wind-up, wake. Make him think you know something he doesn't. That's what I wish for. Chance to squint at a sky so blue that it hurts your eyes just to look at it. To feel the tingle in your arm as you connect with the ball. To run the bases, stretch a double into a triple, and flop face first into third. Wrap your arms around the bag. That's my wish, Reconcilla. That's my wish. And is there enough magic out there in the moonlight to make this dream come true? What would you say if I said yes? I think I'd actually believe you. It's sort of a necessary detour in the story because I think without this message, it alters the ending for sure. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two. By the way, it sets up one of the most emotional moments of the movie for me. Right. And number two, it also could lead you down the path of thinking that this is very selfish, this movie. Right. Instead, it shows you that there's more value in life than just achieving your own dreams that only benefit you. As Terrence says, if he would have got a hit, maybe he would have stuck with baseball and it would have meant a lot of things were different in Chisholm because he benefited so many other people's lives by being this benevolent doctor, very charitable person. I think it expands the idea of what is worth something in life because that's sort of what Ray is facing like he doesn't want to turn to his father but there might be more than just chasing your own dream of being a baseball player he calls annie when he gets back and finds out that the bank has sold the note on the farm to mark and his partners and annie tells him they don't have the money and it's seeming like they're gonna have to give up the farm so they're gonna head back terrence is in it for the long haul he wants to see this field i think it's pretty cool that they sort of trimmed out some of the scenes of Ray explaining the field. Right. There is a little bit of that on the deleted scenes. Not exactly, but he talks about Shoeless Joe and the field a little bit. Uh-huh. And instead, you're just sort of like, well, at some point he told him, <laughs> and Terrence just accepted it. Right. I think that's actually kind of interesting. Yeah, that's true. Although, it does go pretty quickly from, oh, okay, well, I guess that's just it for Graham, to Graham being back in the mix. Yeah, well... During the drive back to Iowa, Ray and Terrence pick up a young hitchhiker, played by Frank Whaley, looking for a baseball team to join. He tells them his name is Archie Graham. And it's like, fuck you if you don't like that moment. <laughs> that is such a <laughs> great right. moment. Yeah. Like, you can see it coming, kind of. Right. But it's so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for me, that's definitely like a Goosebumps moment the first time you see it. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay. But... Well, why even have to do the other part first? It's like, well, first of all, they wanted to have the magic of him being an old man who died in 1972, and then you get to see him young. That makes it hit home more for the viewer. But like I said, I think it's also crucial to set up the ending and to set up the bigger ideas of the movie that expand beyond just baseball dreams. Ray tells Terrence that his father had dreamed of being a ball player and then later tried to make him pick up the sport instead. At 14, after reading The Boat Rocker by Terrence Mann, Ray stopped playing catch with his father and gave up baseball, which, of course, Terrence 
does not want to hear. <laughs> yeah. That's Maybe... like all the people that stop liking movies after listening to you talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> they became estranged after Ray mocked his father for having a hero who was a criminal, meaning Shoeless Joe, and they never reconciled before his father died. So at this point, you have to have bought in to the movie for this scene to even remotely resonate with anyone or I make think any so. sense. Yeah. Because even though I love this movie and I totally do buy in, I still kind of laugh at this thinking like, really? <laughs> That's the big emotional disconnect is yelling about your father admiring Shoeless Joe and calling him a criminal? Yeah. You can't ever <laughs> repair that? <laughs> <laughs> that was the point of no return? I think a lot of people, when they watch this, they connected to their own father, their own son, that kind of a thing. You know, my dad never really cared about sports at all. I mean, he would play catch with me, so yeah, yeah. I, I never had that thing okay. of that kind of ending to the movie. But yeah. the idea of my dad caring about a baseball player so much <laughs> that it could like hurt his feelings, yeah. <laughs> it just seems so weird. I yeah. just don't even... Or really any like person adult. from... <laughs> culture or anything that you would like could say something about that person and that it would be so offensive to your parent i think you're supposed to read into it more that their relationship was fractured that he knows he's just saying something to try to hurt yeah that's really the act his father was sort of a beaten down man at that point and he wanted to force baseball onto him and their their relationship just wasn't good his dad's just like fuck this throws the mitt down (laughs) runs across and tackles him yeah, because this happened when they were playing catch, yeah. apparently. <laughs> no, they stopped playing catch That's at right. 14. Yeah. <laughs> they all arrive at the farm and discover Shoeless Joe and the other White Sox players have invited even more players so that they can have a full game. And I was wondering, is there supposed to be backstories for all these other guys? They were just Something famous players. Bad happened? Died. No. I know, but like... No. There, is there not supposed to be this feeling of regret for all of the people that are coming back and playing no i don't think with these new players because they were just sort of like the star some of the star players from that era yeah they throw in that ty cobb joke right which doesn't really make sense either because apparently shoeless joe and ty cobb were like good friends in real life okay ty cobb is such a notorious asshole that they probably wanted to distance themselves yeah i think he was like super racist and stuff (laughs) of course a game is played and moonlight graham who is allowed to join the team's finally gets his turn at bat, and he hits a sack fly. So he gets that RBI. Not a hit, though. The next morning, Mark returns, still not seeing the players, walking across the field during their game, oblivious to the game that's going on, which is weird because the bats and the balls are real, Yeah, and Ray bought them. Right. Which they did cut that scene out, but the bats were there anyway before the players came. Yeah. So So you would think... That you would see just a bat in the air, and I guess that's true. Yeah, you have to suspend disbelief for a sure. Bit. The logic doesn't always work. Mark returns, demanding that Ray sell the farm or the bank will foreclose on him. Little Karen insists that people will come, presumably paying to watch the ball games. Terrence agrees, saying that people will come to relive their own childhood innocence. Mark not having it though, and Terrence gives another baseball speech, really laying it on thick. <laughs> Well, they're all good. They all 
resonate, you right. believe in them. It does sort of explain why baseball was so important to people in in a different time. Sure. When there wasn't as much technology, the world wasn't as fast-paced. Baseball loomed large for everyone. That's true. You do forget how many hours people needed to eat up, and baseball was a great sport for that. It's like, <laughs> this could last four hours. Yeah, it just sort of captured the American dream. Like I said, you could come from anywhere in the country, get to the big city. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Now I like soccer for like the exact opposite reason. I'm like two hours in and out. All right, all right, all right, all right. This is fascinating. It is. But the fact remains is that you don't have the money to bring the mortgage up to date, so you're still going to have to sell. I'm sorry, Ray. We got no choice. Ray. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door, as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. It is money they have and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines. Where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. It'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick that I have to brush them away from their faces. Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Ray, you will lose everything. You will be evicted. Mark, as you said, having none of it. He's so hateable during this part that it sort of ruins an acting career. Like, do you think Timothy Busfield was able to overcome how hateable this guy is? No, a lot of auditions where people are just like, get out. Not even hearing him read. It's hard to play like a good guy, like a normal good guy in a movie after some of the shit that goes down here. Yeah, well, especially what he does in reaction to all of this. And ultimately, it leads to Ray saying that he's not going to leave. He's not going to sell. Which means that in this scenario, it would be foreclosed upon eventually, but he's not going to willingly go. And it does sort of have Jordan Belfort from Wolf of Wall Street vibes. <laughs> I'm not fucking leaving. We're not fucking leaving. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like making this speech. Yeah. Everyone's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Ray and Mark scuffle when Mark 
picks up Karen because he's trying to prove some point. He's like, you've even got your daughter believing this horse shit or whatever. And he picks her up. <laughs> And then she falls off the bleachers. In a way that I guess you're supposed to take as it's an accident, the way that it's shot, it sort of looks like he picks her up and throws her. (laughs) I know. He's not only trying to take their house from them, he just chucks their daughter off the top of the bleachers. (laughs) She hits the ground. She's not breathing. And in one of the more tearjerker moments. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. Moonlight. I'm calling him Moonlight for this. That's right. (laughs) Despite understanding that he will be unable to return after stepping off of the field, does it anyway and saves Karen by dislodging a piece of hot dog she was choking on. Turns into old Moonlight. He's become old Doc Graham again, but assures Ray he has no regrets. So, Yes, this is definitely an emotional moment, but not without its own unintentional comedy. I know, because it's crazy the amount of supernatural rules that are in flux right now. Well, not only that, but Annie is running towards the house to call 911, and Ray is just like, wait. Don't do it. Wait. No idea what's going on with his daughter. Right now, she's not breathing. Yeah, he's trusting these ghosts to make it work. (laughs) And then if you're Moonlight Graham, you're like, well, she was just choking on some hot dog. You don't know the Heimlich? I had to give up my baseball fantasy life for this? That's right. And he doesn't even do the Heimlich. He just kind of hits her on the back with a little bit of force. (laughs) He's like punching her. God damn it. But he's okay. He has no regrets. He got his big at bat against Major League Pitching. And Doc is commended by the other players as he walks across the field and then disappears into the corn. Yeah, and Shoeless Joe has the last word. You were good. (laughs) Suddenly, Mark, too, can see the players and realizes Ray can't sell the farm. Although, I don't understand. Did he have some sort of metamorphosis here? Like, what changed for him? The old guy who just showed up? Because he goes, where'd this guy come from? Oh, that's right. Yeah, he does. So he does see him. Yeah, that's right. So Even though he's a ghost, too. Yeah, I don't know. But he's not on the field anymore. I know, yeah. I don't know. Ray and Annie are pretty quick to forgive and forget. Yeah, we like, get it. <laughs> I th- For some reason, I was like, does Ray punch him, though, at the end of this? And it's like, no, he doesn't. He should have. It would have maybe cleaned that up a little bit Well, better. he never really seems too distracted by all of it, which I think is part of it, too. He's never really that bothered by what's going on. He's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm not worried about it. Who? Ray. He's just. He never seems all that bothered by... Well, he was scuffling with him. That's what led... He's like, don't you touch her or whatever. Next yeah. Thing you know, well, I thought he was just defending his daughter there. I didn't... It wasn't like... Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, thing. after the fact, he that's seems true. like That's true. Yeah, so why pissed. weren't they... Yeah, why weren't they like, well, you still threw my daughter off the top of the bleachers. Instead, Annie's like, why don't you go inside and have something to drink? <laughs> and then he just disappears from the rest of the movie. Yeah. Mark, I mean. Shoeless Joe invites Terrence to enter the corn. And Terry disappears into oh, God. it with the players. Ray, just an uncontrollable baby over this. <laughs> he wants to write the story. Ray is angry at not being invited, but Joe's got one last reveal. He glances towards the catcher, who is hung back over by home plate, saying, if you build it, he will come, emphasizing he. Maybe proving that the field was not for Shoeless Joe the whole time. When the catcher removes his mask, Ray recognizes him as his father as a young man, which is strange because he would have been much younger than he was when Ray was actually born. True. By that math, he was already in his late 50s, but... That's okay. 
It turns out that ease his pain referred to Ray's own regrets in life. What are you grinning at, you ghost? If you build it, he will come. saw him years later when he was worn down by life. Look at him. He's got his whole life in front of him, and I'm not even a glint in his eye. What do I say to him? Why don't you introduce him to his granddaughter? Thank you folks for putting up this field, letting us play here. I'm John Kinsella. I'm Ray. My wife, Annie. This is my daughter, Karen. Karen, this is my... This is John. Hi, John. Hiya, Karen. Well, we're gonna let you two talk. I mean, if all these people are gonna come, we got a lot of work to do. Very nice meeting you. Ray introduces John Kinsella to his wife and daughter, initially without referring to him as his father. As John begins to head towards the cornfield, it's actually kind of perfect how they do this even though on the surface you're like, it doesn't really make sense. Where you're never really sure as the viewer if this guy realizes that this is his son or not. Like, you, it never is clear. Yeah. But it kind of works. You know it what does. I mean? Yeah. Because there's like an agreed upon acceptance that's just not vocalized. Ray, calling him dad, asks if he wants to have a catch. You catch a good game. Thank you. so beautiful here. For me, well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? 
It's Iowa. Iowa? This is a big topic every time this movie is brought up, even with Costner doing the promotional stuff for the Field of Dreams game that just happened. She sure. was asked about this again. And on the bonus features as well, on the Blu-ray where he talks to George Brett and Johnny Bench and Brett Saberhagen about this movie, the phrase, have a catch. Oh, yes, yes. He said that he asked Robinson about it, that it didn't sound right to him, and he was just he had always said play catch. He right. never heard have a catch. I think it's have a catch probably in the book, and that's why Robinson wanted to stick with it. I do think it is an expression that's used in certain parts of the country, but it's mostly play catch. I've heard it in other things. It's always struck me as odd when I do hear it. See, when I hear it like that you now, I associate from this movie, from this movie though, yeah. which is why it sort of works. It does sound strange because I never said have a catch sure, at yeah. any point, but I knew what they meant, obviously. It wasn't that weird. And I think it, it stands out. It becomes like iconic as part of this movie. Yeah, I think that's fair. John accepts, and they play catch, as hundreds of cars are seen approaching the field, fulfilling the prophecy that people will come to watch baseball. A lot of logistical nightmares ahead. <laughs> that's right. Nowhere to park. Nothing to feed them. Yeah. A lot of issues, but still a very cool visual. It looks awesome. That whole sequence at the end of the movie, starting when the players are walking off the field, it still seems like it's daylight, but the transition into like sunset, into darkness by the time they're playing catch, it all looks like it's all done in one night, like as if it's all in the right amount of time. So I got to ask this. Are people really only coming to see the field? <laughs> Or are they going to see the ghost playing baseball? No, they're going to see the ghosts. Okay, they're going to see the ghosts. I don't know. It's it's seemingly. I think in limited. the in the. I think it's sort of addressed in the Terrence Mann monologue when he picks up what Karen's saying. Okay. Yeah, which means that this would not be a secret. The ghosts, like yeah. people would just know about it. It <laughs> right. would just become a thing, I guess. And somebody would probably ruin it in some way. Well, yeah, and I guess like the capitalist in me would start thinking like, all right. 
what are we charging for people to get in? Well, again, Terrence Mann said twenty dollars yeah. a person. Like Jurassic Park. We'll we can charge made. whatever we want. People will come from all over. This last shot is cool. They got the go ahead from like the the town in Iowa to do this. They got a bunch of volunteers, like a lot. I don't know how many hundreds of cars they had to use to do this. It might Nothing have worse in the world for me than sitting in traffic. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they created the illusion that the cars were moving by switching from high beams to low beams. Off in the distance, yeah. they're not actually moving, but it makes it seem like they're moving. Looks cool. It's a great oh, ending. Yeah. It feels sort of abrupt, I will say that. I don't yeah. know. And I guess there isn't more that should happen, but... Just not really remembering or knowing how it was going to end. It all kind of feels very abrupt. Yeah, I think you have to totally buy into the the father-son thing. Yeah. Because that's the big climax. There's nothing more to it. I guess Terrence Mann gets to come back. It's not really clear. He just sort of disappears into the corn. Yeah. Because he's talking about like writing the story. Like That's the big thing. Like I'm going to write again. He hasn't written in like 20 years or whatever. But I don't know. Yeah. Not really sure how the rules work. I was like, honestly, when he's first going out there, I'm like, Ray, are you sure you want to go? I mean, it kind of seems like Terrence is maybe it's kind of like one of these like come towards the light (laughs) moments. That's what it feels like. I think I used to interpret it that way, but I paid more attention to what they were saying about him like writing the story and Mm -hmm. stuff. And then I'm like, well, why can't Ray go then? Because they're acting like, well, you have a family to take care of. Right, right. Like this is going to be some big dangerous thing that's going to happen. I don't know. Who knows? But it's all very mystical, whimsical. Definitely. And it's emblematic of a different time in movies. And I think it's definitely an American classic. I don't know that I necessarily really think of it as a sports movie. It just has a sports element to it. Yeah. The music in the opening credits reminds me of like that inspirational sports music like they would play at the beginning of like a Mighty Ducks movie. You know? <laughs> yeah. I do like Horner's score for most of it. Yeah. He was nominated for the Academy Award. It definitely hangs back at the right times. It sort of conveys more of a spiritual journey than like a sports movie feel for a lot of it. Okay, so that's Field of Dreams. Had a fun time revisiting it in the dog days of summer, heading towards the end of it. Yeah. Baseball season going on. I have no idea what's going on in baseball. I have not followed it this year at all. Same. <laughs> there would be years of me not watching a baseball game. Right. So that's where I'm at with baseball. Okay. I think let's skip recommendations and just wrap it up. I think we've talked enough about this one. Yep. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Let us know what you think of the show. It's always fun interacting with people. If you get a chance, send us a tweet. Send us a DM, whatever. We like being in contact with you. If you would like a sticker, you can let us know on there as well. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Please, if you get a chance, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. That's another thing we love to do is read those reviews. It's always fun seeing what people have to say. It feels like one of the last things left to live for. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Thank you so much for listening. We're not really sure right now what the schedule's going to be like for the next 
month or two. There could be a gap somewhere in there. I know that could be the, a hiatus. The next thing you hear, no matter what, yeah, will be a give us a second. We have something fun planned for that that we're going to record right now. But beyond that, who knows? We might take our usual November break early and do it before Greatest October. So if we don't see a new episode, enjoy September. Just roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back by mid-September at the latest anyway. Yeah. Probably before mid-September, but you know what I mean. It's in flux. We'll see what happens. Yeah. There's a lot of question marks right now, (laughs) which maybe we'll explain someday. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, thanks for listening, as always, and we'll talk to you pretty soon would that give us a second we were born before the wind also younger than the sun yeah the bonnie boat was one as we sail into the mystic oh, i can hear the sailors cry Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit fly into the mystic And where that foghorn blows I will be coming home Yeah, when the foghorn blows, I wanna hear it. I don't have to fear it, and I wanna rock your gypsy soul. Just like way back in the days of old. Yeah, magnificently we will fold into the mystic. You know I will be coming home Yeah, when that foghorn whistle blows I gotta hear it I don't have to fear it And I wanna rock your gypsy soul Just like way back in the days of old And together we will fold Iowa.